Hi, I'm Gary, and this is episode 141 of EV Musings, a podcast about renewables, electric vehicles, and things that are interesting to electric vehicle owners. On the show today, we'll be looking once again at Osprey charging. This season of the podcast is sponsored by ZapMap, the free-to-download app that helps EV drivers search, plan, and pay for their charging. Before we start, I'd like to welcome you all back to Season 8 of the podcast. Season 8, good grief. Over the next 20 weeks, as usual, we'll be covering a vast range of topics in the EV and renewable space. We've got interviews lined up with loads of interesting people, including Edmund King OBE, President of the AA, the CEO of Kempower, a company we'll hear more about in today's episode, and Jonathan Porterfield will make a return visit to the podcast to discuss the state of second-hand cars. We'll also be catching up with someone who runs and owns a Kia EV6 to talk about his experiences with that vehicle. I'd also like to welcome back ZapMap, who've agreed to continue sponsoring the show for another season. Thank you, ZapMap. It's an app I use pretty much every time I get in the car for a journey of more than a few miles, just so I know where the nearest charges are and what the status is of those charges using Apple CarPlay, an option available via ZapMap Premium. And on the subject of ZapMap Premium, a big hello to my patrons. I have a small group of dedicated supporters who help me alongside ZapMap to keep this podcast running. All patrons get a free ZapMap Premium membership thanks to our sponsors, and this allows you to use the app with Apple CarPlay and Android Auto, amongst other benefits. So if you want this, why not consider becoming a patron? Link in the show notes. Furthermore, ZapPay have a promotion out for podcast listeners. To celebrate World EV Day, ZapMap are offering users the chance to win a month's free charging. You'll be entered into a prize draw just by using ZapPay. Over 3,000 chargers up and down the country take ZapPay and counting. From ultra-rapid chargers for longer journeys to lamppost chargers on residential streets, ZapPay covers all types of chargers and uses. Nationwide charging networks Genie Point and Mer, alongside ultra-rapid provider MFG EV Power, are now live on ZapPay. They joined Osprey, ESB Energy and Chargey with plenty more networks on the way. Entry to the prize draw is simple. Use ZapPay to charge your car from this podcast release date, 19th of September, until Sunday, the 9th of October, 2022. Oh, and let ZapPay know you'd like to be part of the prize draw with a quick email. See details in the show notes and on the ZapMap website. Our main topic of discussion today is Osprey charging. We had Osprey charging on an earlier episode, episode 69, alongside Tom Callow from BP Pulse, or Chargemaster as they were then. I'll link to that episode in the show notes. At the time, Osprey mainly had single units in pub car parks, very similar to BP Pulse, but they had a much higher price per kilowatt hour. Since then, they've diversified by virtually mandating double units everywhere. They've also gone for hubs big time and have installed the Kempower units that handle load management across multiple chargers. This episode was recorded before Osprey increased their prices to a rather eye-watering £1 per kilowatt hour, so please bear that in mind as you listen to this discussion. I wanted to get Osprey back on because I think it'll be a good companion episode to the one we did at the end of last series, which was with Fastnet, Genie Point and Podpoint. I'm going to cover some of the same ground here in terms of questions, but there's a lot more to dig deep into with Osprey. 
So welcome, Ian Johnston, CEO of Osprey Charging. I think we can call you a friend of the podcast, given the conversations you and I have had over the years. Yeah, I think so. I think we're there. I think appearance two warrants the badge. Right. <laughs> I've got a uh, a nice chunk of questions for you. So I think let's just jump straight into that. Let's, let's talk about the elephant in the room, pricing. Talk to me about where you see pricing going. I mean, you're obviously hedging in advance and you've got a a finger on the pulse of where the wholesale price is. For how much longer do you think it's going to stay up at reasonably high levels? Clearly, very good question, very timely at the moment. I think there are a few things which are all happening here in terms of what we're seeing with regards to UK public charging pricing. Clearly, there's a global energy crisis because of the the unfortunate events overseas. That is, it's a very, very difficult situation. And the impact is going to affect every household, but even more so every business, from your local coffee shop to the bakery to factories and everybody else. So I think the situation is going to get a lot, lot worse before it gets any better. As you say, we're, we're, of course, as a a business that trades in kilowatt hours, we're, we are watching this and have to and, and do do as part of our, our usual business. But I mean, the, the prices that are being talked about now for commercial procurement of electricity, people are talking about the cost to businesses being one pound per kilowatt hour over the winter period. Well, I think the biggest, the most frightening part is that historically what's happened is winter's always been more expensive and then you enjoy these fantastically low prices in the summer which balance it out. So, of course, when you fix for you know, a year or two years or three years, uh, as businesses like ours do, you, it all balances out. I think the worrying thing at the moment, if you were to look today at estimates of next summer, despite all the solar on the system, we're still looking at 70 pence a kilowatt hour. And that is a direct result of what's happening in, in, in Ukraine at the moment. And um, you know, the UK is not relatively that dependent on, on Russian gas, but Europe is. And therefore, when the rest of Europe is looking for different sources for its gas, then, then of course, that does impact on us. So it's bad today. It's going to get a lot worse. And I don't think it's as simple as saying we'll be through this come next summer. Because none of us can predict what happens in you know, with, with the situation in Ukraine. I think the, the clearly long, longer term, you know, the picture's much brighter. I, I, I don't think we'll ever see prices like we saw uh, a year, two years ago of Energy costing, you know, somewhere between ten and fifteen pence a kilowatt hour for for homes or businesses, but but it will come back down. Question is when, um, and and it's you got to remember that even before the invasion of Ukraine, the gas prices started to jump due to major changes in in, in the supply of, of gas. So I think there's lots of conversations out there right now around what can the UK government do to to, to delink gas from electricity. It, it's very complicated. There's a lot of work that needs to be done. The quickest thing we could do is just permit more, more onshore and offshore wind. We still have this, in effect, a ban in place. But it, look, it's a very serious problem. The, but the second part is, and this is, again, a difficult thing to hear, but we became conditioned in the UK public charging space on very affordable or, in many cases, free DC charging. So there, there have been these fantastic schemes such as Charge Place Scotland or if you look at the West Yorkshire DC charging rollout, where there's free charging. Whereas in Europe, of course, the price for proper high-powered DC charging has always been in the region of 70, 60, 70, 80 euro cents per kilowatt hour. So we're, we're seeing a correction of pricing to where it probably should have always been, You know, certainly above 50 pence a kilowatt hour for uh, high-powered DC charging hubs and all the infrastructure that we know we all want to see in these hubs. But unfortunately, the price not only moved there, but then has, of course, flown beyond it because of what's happening overseas at the moment. 
Now, you're already at 66 pence a kilowatt hour. Now, other than Ionity, you were either the first or the second to go up above sort of 60 pence. Now, we're, we're now approaching that point where it can be cheaper to pay for diesel than to charge your car at that price. So what, what sort of discussions took place around that decision to, to move sort of above 60 pence a kilowatt hour? I think the, as you will know, as an advocate, the, the list of transitioning from a, a diesel or petrol car to an EV is long. There's a, a number of reasons, and which is why you hear people say, I'll never go back. I think, unfortunately, for the next six, 12 months, cost savings where you're dependent purely on public charging are not going to be a reason to move from petrol or diesel to to an electric vehicle. I think we have to admit that everything I've just said about what's going to happen in the electricity market over over this winter is going to mean that with the petrol price dropping as it currently is, that saving will probably disappear in the short term. In terms of how did it impact our conversations, you know, we, again, as I've said many times, at the moment, the CPOs are absolutely focused on investing millions of pounds in the infrastructure. Most of us are a long way off from uh, breaking even and making profit when you look at all of the money being invested into the sites, but also into the, the teams and the businesses we're building. So it's certainly not a case of profiteering. It's absolutely about, you know, if you take the energy price and, and even if you added VAT to that, the prices would be uh, at a frighteningly high level right now before we, we start to cover some of the costs of installation and running the business. We know from the ChargePoint operator episode that finished last season, uh, there are many different pricing models across the market. Amongst the acknowledged top three or four ChargePoint operators, we have yourselves, Instavolt, GridServe, MFG. Now, the price of you and Instavolt is very is and always has been very close. But you're both a fair bit more expensive than GridServe and MFG. So what are they doing that allows them to price the same electricity that you're buying at a lower price? For any commercial business, the price at which you buy energy will be determined by, of course, when you come off and go on to different contracts. Uh, and each of the CPOs would have fixed prices at different times. And it, it will be that that determines the timing of each CPO's changes to prices in the main in the mainstream. You know, so I think we're, I'm sure all of us are looking at our own cost base and, and trying to work out what, what do we need to do to to cover those increasing costs and move forward. So I, I can't talk about when our peers in the market have entered their contracts when they'll leave their contracts. So it, 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 I believe it's a timing factor on, on the contracts. Um, we're all again, many of us come from this space. If you look at Osprey, Grid Servants Develop, we all came from the renewable energy industry. Uh, it's what we've been building for for a decade now. So we, we we're experts in this field, but this is a this is much bigger than just CPOs. I know when I chatted with Dee from GD Point last season, she told me something that really surprised me, which is that GD Point are making a lower profit per kilowatt hour at the new higher price than they were at the old lower price. Is is this the same for Osprey? Absolutely. I mean, again, you've used the word profit there, which I caution, but the, the contribution towards our costs now is is uh, significantly less than it was uh, in the first half of this year. Does that mean that you reduce that contribution margin to stay below a certain price? We look, it's a live conversation, of course, every day, every week, because we are, yeah, the contribution towards our costs and our, our investment in infrastructure is lower now for every customer we see than it was in the first half of the year. So it's a, it's a balancing act all the time. We, we, of course, we don't want prices to get to a level where customers are, are turned off coming into our sites. 
But again, we're a business and and we're not a profitable business today. We're we're trying to expand this network nationwide and and there's a hell of a lot of investment going in. So every day, every week, we're reviewing where we sit. I think because we know that the whole market is going to have to shift because of what we're seeing, I I think in a way there's a level of comfort that that there are going to be few CPOs out there who can who can um, not be affected by this? I think a great example, if you were to look at Shell, who who clearly are different in scale and and, and the business units they have to an Osprey and Insta or GridServe, their prices are increasing at the, at the same rate as ours. So I think this does show you this is bigger than uh, a, a CPO matter. How do offerings like the app Bonnet work? I mean, they charge a lower fee than you do to charge using your own network. How is that possible? So again, without being able to talk about the specifics commercially, there are businesses who, of course, at any point in time can choose to subsidize certain campaigns to to bring new members on board. From our perspective, we have one standard price that we, we provide to whether you're you know, Mr. and Mrs. Smith sit at the charger or whether you're you know Joe Boggs corporate. But uh, from a competition law perspective, we're not able to determine and fix uh, what are our Roman partners charge? Uh, right, that's my pricing bits. We will talk about VAT later on, I think, but I want to talk about locations now. Paisley Pair, we were there at the end of, the, of August for the opening. It's a fantastic site, but there are going to be a couple of questions that come out of that. Mm, yeah, definitely. First one, why was it felt appropriate to install a hub such as that within 11 miles of a similar hub at Banbury, a 16-charger InstaVault hub, an eight-stall Tesla supercharger site open to the public, and Sherwell Valley services on the nearby M40. Well, I think you've, you've partly answered my question already by referencing Banbury, where you've got an Osprey hub, an InstaVault hub, and a Tesla hub within, what do you think, 400 metres of each other? And all three sites are full. You could build a hub from each of our competitors around the Paisley pair, and that is still not meeting the demand we're seeing for public charging. Uh, so I, I think we, we don't look at it in the way of, oh, we, we already have a site down the road in, in Banbury, so therefore Brackley doesn't need one. We are, again, to, to share that, that CPO mindset, we are trying to build DC charging hubs with multiple uh, high power chargers all over the UK. And to do that, you need land and you need power. Fortunately for us, we were able to achieve that in Banbury and we were able to achieve it in Brackley. And we've got more coming not far from Brackley. So we'll, we'll, keep on, we'll keep on doing that. If I look at Cambridge and put a dot in Cambridge and run a radius of 30 miles out from Cambridge, that gives you a circle of 2,400 square miles in which, A, there aren't a large number of chargers, and B, there are absolutely zero Osprey chargers. If you look at the M6 between Preston and Glasgow, a distance of 170 uh, miles, despite the fact there are several Marston's pubs along that that route, again, there are no Osprey chargers. And I'm not even going to start on Central Wales. But again, what was the decision to say, right, we've got, you know, Cambridge has got nothing. The M6 between Preston and and Glasgow has got nothing. But we still think it would be better to put uh, a hub in within 11 miles of one that's already there. Your thought process has approached it in the wrong way because you're inferring that it's a choice between one or two locations. Whereas what I'd love to be saying to you is, oh, look, I have three sites I can build, one in Brackley, one in Preston, one in Cambridge. Fantastic. We're going to build them all. It, it is, we, we are not. If you think about the amount of private investment capital that sits behind the CPOs to invest in this UK charging market, we're now talking multiple billions of pounds sat there ready. 
with proven hardware, with proven software solutions. The aim is to build everywhere, everywhere we can. So why do we not yet have a DC site in in Cambridge? Because as yet we haven't managed to find a landlord or find a piece of land uh, that we can either buy or, or lease the land that will give us the the ability to build a site with a substation to build a hub. Or we found the landlord, and as you say, where, where you see many Marstons, where there are no charges in the area, that means the grid was not viable there, or there was no grid there. So, so clearly, we are as equally uh, aware of the black spots as you are. Where you know, I, I think if a site came to us in one of the black spots and it, it didn't look to us like you know a, a uh, an easy win. We would say, look, we have a black spot to fill. Let's go for it. Let's attack it now. And I'm, I'm delighted to say we are today developing sites in both Preston and Cambridge. In many of those cases, we'll be trying to sort out the, the permissions required to get the substation in. But but yeah, it, it, it will all come down to, to getting the land and getting the grid. As you've seen from the national partnerships we have, it's most likely we have the land, but on those land plots, we couldn't bring in the high voltage power. And this is the interesting game we're trying to balance as well, whereby I, I want to put sites everywhere. When we launch a three-charger site now, which is uh, it's three chargers because it's a low-voltage grid connection, of course, when we celebrate the launch of it, people will say, well, why, are they not, why is it not a hub? Why is it not a high-power hub? And again, the reason is well, because we couldn't secure a high-voltage grid connection there. And I think that's key because a lot of people... Uh, especially on social media. Well it's, all well, it's all well and good putting this one in here, but what about X, Y, and Z? And I don't think a lot of people understand that exactly as you've said there, you can't just go in and say, right, I'm going to put a, a, a hub here because you need the land. You need a landlord who can uh, let you build on there. You need the power supply to be able to put more than a 50 kilowatt on there. And I think a lot of people don't really appreciate this. So I think it's it's good that you were able to just then sort of get that message out. Also, you need the landlord who's willing to allow you to have the time to recoup your investment in, in a project. So the same answer I've just given also applies to why are we seeing less DC installation with local authorities? Because naturally, local authorities like to have a shorter agreement. It might be three years, five years, seven years. Many of these DC projects, you know, if you're not in, in central London, have a payback period of, of 10 years. And, uh, and you will understand that for it to be a fantastic site, we're going to have to refresh and upgrade that hardware before 10 years is out. So you can also, you, you can't install and invest in substations unless you have a longer term arrangement. And if the landlord is only willing to work with you on a, on a short basis, or if indeed that landlord himself themselves only has a short term, well, then it simply isn't viable to build a substation and build a hub. So this is, and again, this is why now CPOs like Osprey are buying land so that we are in complete control as we've done on the first site down in Devon. And let's just jump back to Paisley Pen. I know the answer to this question, but I think I'd, the listeners would like to hear it from you. Why no canopies? Uh, yeah, really disappointing. I think we um, there's a lot of uh, gas infrastructure under the ground of the car park. Again, this is this is another reason why it's fantastic to go into greenfield and brownfield developments when when the the site is clean from that perspective. So this site was meant to have a canopy. There are a few hoops to jump through with canopies in terms of wind loading and construction foundations, etc. It wasn't physically possible to deliver one here, but to give the comfort that we we absolutely do intend to build canopies going forward. The the, the next hub we launch, which is on the A127 in Essex near the N25, the canopy is being built today. I was there this morning, and look, we understand. We 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 are so acutely aware of 
what customers demand as the basics now. Unless there is a, a reason why it would not be safe to do so, we will be looking to install canopies on our hubs going forward. On the subject of locations, I read recently that MFG have signed a deal with um, London Metric Property PLC to build six to eight bay ultra rapid 150 kilowatt charging hubs at six of their retail locations in places like Birmingham, Coventry, Glasgow, etc. This would seem to be precisely the sort of deal that Osprey charging should be in. Were, were you in on any of the conversations about that? I'm not going to talk about specific deals, but I think what will be I think what drivers would, would be pleased to hear and would expect to hear is that you've now got a hyper-competitive market between uh, the likes of Osprey, you know, Instavolt, GridServe, MFG, and others. So you know, f- for a landlord now that has a great asset base, it's a brilliant time to get out there and, and engage CPOs on you know, fully funding EV infrastructure on their site. So it's normally the same names <laughs> who get down to the final round of these conversations and, and Clearly, this is where we all try and innovate and find new ways to beat each other. I think recently you, you, there have been some announcements around the garden centre sector, which might seem a strange one to target. But if you think about large car parks on key strategic A roads where there's lots of space and often located next to the high voltage network, I think you've recently seen announcements from British garden centres who work with Osprey, Dobby's working with GridServe, another garden centre provider working with Mare. You know, this this is this is the way it goes. There's more than enough retail portfolios to go around, and and there are uh, now there's a basket of reliable, high quality CPOs to to fully fund that infrastructure. So, yes, in answer to your question, it's a highly competitive space, and uh, it's the same few trusted networks that your drivers would hope to see winning these contracts, bidding against each other. Well, let's just dig into that a little bit without going into detail or specific detail. If it comes down to Say, say two, say you and one of the other ones that we know are going to be in there. What generally tend to be the reasons that you would be chosen versus the other CPO? Is it price or what, what, what tends to be the key differentiator? It really, it really does differ from uh, retailer to retailer and local authority to local authority. I think if you look at Marston's as an example, who are a business that is, you know, an incredibly impressive commercial entity, but for them, EV charging was definitely a core pillar of their CSR and ESG strategy. I give that as an example of a business for whom there may be different elements to the relationship that might be more important than purely the price they might see on day one. Other, other retailers will run a five-stage procurement process and there'll be you know, the first four stages may all, all be about quality to whittle down your numbers and then the fifth stage is a, is a pure shootout on cost. So it does differ from business to business. I think you know, you, you've got retail park estates here where there are huge car parks and, and, and their business is about having tenants you know, with, with fixed guaranteed incomes that they can book and report to the markets. And then you've got retail businesses who, for whom the customer experience and the the, the ability, the flexibility to integrate with their systems might be their priority, for example. So it, it changes from process to process. Clearly, our position that, that, that our partners love is, you know, we are, because we, we built this Volo back office system, we're able to talk about our roaming credentials in terms of bringing footfall into the site. We can point to launching things like ZapPay and Octopus Juice and, and being a, a launch partner for, for Allstar. And now, of course, the Centrica British Gas Fleet deal has been key reasons to work with Osprey. 
but our peers will have equally strong selling points. So um, I think when you see a contract being awarded to one of the leading networks, it, it, it gives you comfort that it, it's coming down to quality and we're all, you know, we're all very strong offerings. I think what, what we don't really want to see is contracts being awarded to people who have, have been very good at talking the talk, but really can't back it up with, with evidence of a fantastic, reliable nationwide network. But you know, we're in a position now where there's a number of good providers and, and yeah, we are we're in in the uh, at the peloton at the front of the pack and we're we're you know we need to keep innovating to make sure that we are keeping our nose ahead in your opinion and again without naming names why would it be that certain other charge point operators are still on the model of installing single 50 kilowatt charges in locations i mean why not two why not higher voltage what what will be driving that do you believe i don't think there are any charging networks who are fully funded models i.e. Osprey, Gridservants, um, who are installing single units anymore. I think what you're... It was interesting listening to your CPO podcast because there were there were CPOs there who clearly, as explained on that podcast, their, their role, their contract is to deliver, maintain, and service the charging infrastructure for a host, for a retailer. So clearly there are supermarkets we know of where they are putting in 150 kilowatt, that's not the charging network's choice. It's the host. The host has said, we would like to uh, install 150 kilowatt. And I don't know. I'm not a part of those conversations, but one would presume, why would you do that? It's because that's the available power from, from the store. L- let me remind you that you know a, a two-story fast food chain requires the same power as one 50 kilowatt charger. Okay? So the, and the minute you you step above that and you, you try to go you know, three charges, maybe four, you need to bring in a substation and all the extra cost and complication of bringing that into your site. So my my read of the situation without being in those meetings is that it's where the landlord says, well, look, we're required, we, we want, we have a strategy for charging, but clearly we're not, we're not here of, of, of installing large hubs. Now, as you would have seen, I think clearly the CPOs involved in those deals will be heavily advising the host this is not the future. The future is hubs that, you know, the public want eight, 16, 24, you know, high power charging hubs. And I think we've all seen that recently Morrison's have, have made the switch and have installed, you know, a hub rather than a single charger. The other thing that is going to be helpful in driving this is planning and, and where these businesses in the UK are opening car parks as part of new retail sites. The planning laws are fantastic in requiring them to have not only a charging offering from day one, but also future-proofing the site for charging in the future as well. I want to talk about power in a second, but just wrapping up on the the whole hardware thing. Now, you as a charge point operator have, I think, three different types of charger in your arsenal. You've got those fantastic chem powers, you've got the tritium 75 kilowatts, and your original 50 kilowatt chargers, such as the ones that were already there at the Paisley Pair. Now, do you want to talk a little bit about dwell time power input and why you can't or don't stick those fantastic chem power charges everywhere one of the core pieces of our dna has always been that we've tried to be honest and trusted about why we do things the way we do them so where you are seeing us installing tritium 75 kilowatt units is because that site has a natural dwell time of 45 to 60 minutes okay where we are installing the chem powers is where it is more of an en route charging needs. So when there's a site next to an A-road, that's where you're going to see us looking to put the Kempai units in to deliver a slug of power in as short a time as possible. Um, and clearly, you know, 
Pacey pairs an interesting example because you, you've got high power, you've got 50 kilowatts, there's going to be some AC going in there as well because it's on an A road, but you've also got the hotel and the restaurant too. But for us, our in terms of what charge rates do we wish to deliver in the charging bay, we're either looking at between, you know, between 50 and 75 kilowatts or it's, it's a high power delivery, dependent on site type. Well, that brings us nicely on to power then. We spoke with Stuart Reed recently from one of the major DNOs and he mentioned that there are occasions where relocating a charger, say 100 yards, can save thousands on uh, on installation costs because you're that much closer to wherever the nearest high voltage source of power is. Talk, talk to me about the relationship that Osprey has with the DNOs and, and how that actually works. Just to reference that comment, I think, again, it's an opportunity for me to clarify the mindset of a CPO to your listeners, because the, the quote was fair, you know, digging up a road for 100 meters can add thousands and thousands of pounds, but CPOs pay those costs because we want to build these sites. So in the example of our Purdy Way Hub, we spent a quarter of a million pound digging up the concrete on that A-road to get the power into the site. So again, if the if it's viable, if it's physically possible, and it's not insanely expensive to bring the power in, we will spend the money. The site you and I stood on on Monday cost half a million pounds to build. So we're not afraid of those costs. We don't say, well, we're not going to build that site or because we can't move the charges. To answer your question around our relationship with the DNO, so clearly with every site that we get the opportunity to build on, we apply for the grid connection. If you were to look at the heat maps from the DNOs of is there power in the ground, in many cases, those maps are green or amber. There is power. The thing that stops us building is that you don't want us to build the charging site where the grid cable is. You want us to build where you want to spend your time the dwell time or, or on the side of the road. So the thing that stops us building is the cost or the legal ability to bring the power from the local HV grid network to the site where you, the driver, want to spend your time. And that may be, that may be 10 metres away. It might be 2.5 kilometres away, digging through the car park of Pets at Home, Wicks, Mr. and Mrs. Smith's house, front garden, and that's when you can't deliver the grid to a site. Motorway service areas. Uh, now, we talked online many months back about the current monopoly that exists there and how you think this needs to change. But I think between then and now, we've had movement with the CMA report and the government making the decision about MSAs needing some high voltage, high output charges in there. Where are Osprey when it comes to motorway services? Would you want to link with someone like Moto or Roadchef and have exclusivity in their specific locations? Or would you want to put them in everywhere? Or are you just not interested in those as locations? Firstly, as as one of the you know, the UK's favourite public DC networks, we, we'd be, of course, we want to play on, on the MSA sites, should the opportunity be opened up to us. I I think there, there's been some really good engagement with the OZEV team over the last year or so in terms of what should that look like. Clearly, at the same time, we've seen many of the MSAs opening their own charging networks as well. I think ultimately, you know, of course, there needs to be competition, be that inter-site or intra-site, but we, we'd love to be there. I think my my concern is just time. I think when you see some of the dates that are referenced, take for example, the objective to have six DC units at every MSA by the end of 2023. Anyone who listens to your show will know that is nowhere near enough. You know, we're, we're, we're fortunate to see that, that, that some sites right now where there's grid, we're getting more than that already. 
But in many, in many cases, we're going to get to the end of 2023 and there are going to be hundreds of thousands of more EVs on the road and the provision of six DC charges is wholly inadequate and insufficient. So it needs acceleration, it needs escalation. But at the same time, I, I don't believe we need to be writing, you know, opening a bank account with £950 million to fund the grid at every MSA. You know, many of these, many of these MSAs enjoy such fantastic traffic and demand for charging that even if a grid connection costs millions, it, it's viable. It's very viable. We'd, we'd pay it tomorrow, given the chance. So I think, yes, we'd love to play there. It, it definitely needs acceleration and escalation. But uh, there are a lot of things in the UK right now that need more investment from government. I'm not convinced that, you know, a billion pounds on MSAs is grid uh, connections is the right way to go. The, the A roads equally, there are as many sites on A roads which are immensely valuable and where you need charging, particularly in black spots, where a lesser amount of investment could open up, you know, again, hundreds of, of charging hubs. So uh, it, it's as you say, positive that the conversation and the dialogue is, is a lot more constructive now. I think you've got, I'm in the meeting, so I'm able to see that there is cross-industry engagement and collaboration between the charging networks, which is fantastic because it makes it easier for OZEV and Treasury to, to hear clear argumentation rather than, you know, argumentation that's selfish to certain CPOs. And uh, look, I just think it's going to take time, unfortunately. And, and that is, it means it, it's, it's going to be there after many people need it. I'm interested in your thoughts on Apple Green. It's obvious that Welcome Breaker wanted to do their own thing regarding charging at their motorway service areas. And they've partnered with Apple Green to install chargers at at least two locations that I know of, South Mims and Hartshead Moor. What, what are your thoughts on that? Is, is that something, would you have approached uh, Welcome Break and said, could we, could we be the partners instead of Apple Green? Or was that something that they just did off their own back and didn't necessarily go out to the industry generally? I think, look, historically, all, all the CPOs, of course, were in hitting the MSAs hard just as we were hitting all major retailer businesses. I think if you are a business that has historically ran fuel stations, then it's an interesting debate as to, well, why would we not run these refueling stations as well? So I think what you're seeing, MFG is a great example, Euro Garages is another example, Tesco and Morrison's now, we're seeing the same, is that people who have a business that run refueling sites wish to try and run these refueling sites too. It, it, it's about, I think it's about control. It's about you know, what is their future as a business. I think there will be some parties, in, maybe in other industries, who try it and realize, God, this is complicated. It's difficult to, you know, the, the delivery of these sites is hard, but the, the running the network day-to-day is even harder. And therefore, you'll probably see a, a position where they, they end up maybe collaborating with charger networks like Osprey to to help them run their networks to a standard that we're running ours. And, and as you'd expect, we're in conversations like that today where maybe it's not the fully funded offering where we control and fund everything, but we, we certainly run it to the usual Osprey standards. So I, I think that there's going to be a bit of a journey. I think there'll be people that try it and get terrified and pull back and then they let people like us run it. And there'll be those that say, look, we've, we've run fuel networks for years, so that we, we, need, we must do it ourselves. Let's talk location design and accessibility. And there's, there's obviously a number of issues here. And uh, John Brooks, Bearded Mint Beer Face on Twitter, has spoken about these on a recent episode. Curbs, heavy cables, high screens, which require to be at screen level to read. And there's the issues of canopies and CCTV amenities, etc. Now, 
obviously Paisley Pear is um, a, a great example of where you're doing this right. But uh, what are you looking at when you're designing hubs and charging locations to take into account people such as John who have disabilities? One thing we've always tried to do is to be the most open and easily accessible network. And I don't just mean accessibility from a, a mobility perspective, but if you look at our roaming strategy and the way we try to lead the way on the site designs, it, it's a core it's a cool part of our DNA. It's one of those things that makes us stand out versus the competition. There are sites we won't build if we can't achieve what we believe is a minimum standard in terms of the parking bay layout. You talked about before the, the PAS standards that are coming in. Of course, we want to adopt those as a minimum. To achieve that, the charging network has to convince the landlord to do that. And, and if you look at Paisley Pair, you know, we, we, we took up maybe 16 bays to create that eight bay accessible area. That If you're a, a retail park or a fast food chain, that's a really difficult conversation to have um, in terms of the pound per bay value they see in their mind or in their books. So we, from our perspective now, we will, we will be seeking to achieve our fully accessible format on any hub site we build or and certainly every site we own where we own the land properly this will be the minimum for us if you look at many of the compact sites now we have which are our two or three charger sites uh, where we couldn't get the power for a hub they as well are having this accessible design in the bays so my my view on the standards is that it should be the legal minimum and not a, a kind of a high bar to target the reason is that again where you have retail businesses, uh, car park owners who are in ultimate control of the site. My view is if they want to play in EV infrastructure, they want to enjoy the benefits it brings, they should they should deliver a good and easy experience every time. So in the meantime, it allows Osprey to, you know, again, have a proof point of how we're trying to do the right thing for the driver, making our bays as accessible as we can. And, you know, you would have seen us shift around where we locate the chargers. We've shifted around our our designs in terms of the, the the bumper strips and other things like this. Of course, ultimately, the one thing that, that is, is much harder to influence is global hardware manufacturing. But thankfully, there are many European start standards which are stricter than UK standards in terms of screen visibility, screen height, etc. Another reason we, we absolutely love the, the Tritium RTM 75 and the Kempower is the usability is just so good versus some of the competitive chargers. And, and that's and again, we are selecting the hardware that we believe is the easiest for the new user to use, not the hardware we can get the best discounts on, etc. Are you looking at going back and retrofitting any of your existing sites with some of the potential standards from the past 1899? Yes, I am. Yeah. So, and, and the, the place we're going to start is all of our single charger sites. So, in, in probably in Q4 this year, we are going to go back to the 50 sites, which currently have one single circuit control charger. Uh, we'll be adding second chargers and we'll be, be uh, reformatting those sites as well. You talked a few seconds ago, particularly with somewhere like uh, Paisley Pear, about blocking off a number of bays for you to put your charges in. And one of the things that I'd like to see, and I know it's done quite a lot on the continent with people like Fastnet, is the whole concept of the drive-through charger rather than the drive-in. And that would allow towing. It would allow longer, higher, wider vehicles to go in. Are you looking at any locations that potentially have the ability to put in drive-through charging rather than the drive-in charging? Yeah, we are. Uh, again, we, you know, clearly we, we are proud of all the great work we've done with fleets at the moment. Look at the, the British gas announcement recently. Uh, there are many fleets who have you know, health and safety policies around parking in bays, etc. So we're, we're very aware of this. Clearly, again, it comes down to being allowed the space within a site. I think the other thing 
for which it lends itself is, of course, queue management as well. So I would on this, I'd just say watch this space on on uh, some of the bigger hubs that we're bringing out uh, in in the coming months. But but yeah, very very aware of it. Look, the the market need today for you know EVs towing caravans is small. But again, we're trying to build a network here which which stands the test of time. And the team, the design team we've got is, is relentlessly focused. And, and you know, even this week now, since Monday, looking at every single speck of feedback on Paisley Pair. How can we get better? How can we get better? Of course, that's, that's an obvious one for us to attack. Let's talk charger etiquette. There's an interesting Twitter thread recently about someone having to wait while another owner blocked a charger waiting for that last few percentage of the battery to fill up on a rapid rather than moving to an AC unit. Is there anything that can be encoded into a charger to stop someone charging on a rapid, say, above 80 or 85%? Would, would you want to do that? I mean, would you want to put in, say, overstay fees? What, what's the sort of Osprey opinion of you on that? Yeah, we, we have sites with overstay fees at the moment. So, of course, we look at the average uh, connection time, difference charge time on each of our sites, on each of our charging bays, and we attack the list from the top in terms of those where we know there's issues. So if you look at the Stratford site, the hub in London, that is located next to Westfield. People, of course, try and take the mickey there. So that's the site where we brought in the AMPR and the penalties uh, on that site. I think it, it, it's interesting because you, you, we can sit in a, in a rose-tinted office and think about etiquette. We can, we are currently providing, we're refreshing all of our signage across the network in September around best practice and etiquette. But the reality is, with the great British public, is it's, it's uh, penalties that, that, that really make the difference. So I think it is a site-specific issue. Um, I think when you look at the case of uh, CCTV, uh, security and overstay issues. The, it, it is not a blanket approach, but on a site-by-site basis, we're, we're in the data and we, we, we definitely want to deliver a solution there. You've got to remember, you know, every every bit of, you know, when there's a negative experience, when there's a negative tweet, it's a dagger to the heart. I feel the hard work we've been in. So we're, we're, we're on it and we're working with our uh, with the MPR providers now. I think that clearly the complicated part of this is around the, uh, the legalities around issuing penalties and where we are where we are a tenant in a larger car park area where you have to technically integrate into the AMPR systems and, and, and all the and the fine systems that are there. So at Stratford we've delivered a very complex solution whereby your vehicle is whitelisted uh, as you drive into the car park, uh, you're picked up by an AMPR again at the charger, which again whitelists you and that then feeds into the automatic billing for the car park. So it's unfortunately not a cookie cutter approach, but it's on the list and, we're, and we're, we're starting at the top of the list and working our way down. And what about the other issue on that, which is people, because ideally on a, on a rapid, you should get to 80, 85% tops and then get off there and let somebody else get on because that extra 15, 20% is going to take forever. Is there anything in the pipeline to address people staying on longer than ideally they should, given that there are also people who drive around in 24 kilowatt hour Nissan Leafs who will absolutely need 100% every time they charge. I, I think there are, for the, for the customers that engage through the app and through an account, there's so much we can do in terms of uh, communication with the driver mid-charge. I, I think otherwise, we clearly the, the crudest step to take would be to cut people off at 80 or 90. As you say, there, there's a lot of people that rely on our network because they don't have a home charger. And for them, that, that once a week charge, every, every mile counts. So we're trying to get the balance right between moving people on and upsetting customers. We're, we're, as you'd expect, we're doing market testing with drivers at the moment. 
but but I, I think there will be there's a communication piece in terms of signage, and then there's also more we can do in terms of in session communication too. Topic of interest to me: plug and charge. I mean, the technology exists, especially with some of the chargers you're using. What well, what are the barriers to putting that in, as far as Osprey are concerned? So yeah, the, the tritium and Kempower are plug and charge ready. To, to use the phrase, I think for us we we are under we're absolutely sure that plug and charge will play an important role in the mid decade in terms of how people transact and pay for their charging. At the moment, you see alternatives like auto charge. There's of course the the, the main route to plug and charge being being pushed by the likes of Hubject and others. Uh, I think the real debate is who will prevail in the battle for the wallet. And it's the, the delivery of the tokenization of that transaction that's required. And I'm sure Volkswagen, Daimler believe that they will own your wallet and my wallet. I'm sure Google and Apple believe they will own our wallet. I think our job as a CPO is to be a facilitator and to be able to technically integrate with whoever consumers wish to use for plug and charge. So uh, as I say, one, one of the major benefits of building your own back office platform as you did is it's given us control uh, over where we focus our development resource. It's a question, I think, of, of when. There will be a day where a driver will say, I'm going to turn left here instead of right because this site offers plug and charge. Our job is to make sure that we are ahead of that driver, but that is not going to be Q1 2023, in my opinion. Talk to me about the Osprey app. Now, with people universally say, we need contactless payments, not an app, why have you decided to give both options? And what sort of usage does the app have? Do you get a lot of people starting charges with it? We do, we do, we do. If you think of it as a as a pyramid of, of hygiene factors, you know, of course, it goes without saying, every single charge point in the UK, every single DC charge point should have a contactless uh, payment device on there. I'm not talking QR codes that take you to a landing page, I'm talking a card reader. If they can do it on a vending machine, you can do it on a, on a, a DC charge point. But what, what you then get are the, the the thousands of customers that say, you know, please, can't I just have an app where I can review my account usage, where I can get my VAT receipts? And of course, then that opens up the communication options as well, both ways in terms of people providing feedback, making us aware of things on site. So we get drivers asking us, please, can we have an app? Please, can I have a, a way of reviewing my charging data with you? It's completely optional. We, we find ways to incentivize and reward people for using the app. But we understand that if you're traveling in the UK, you will have your favorite Osprey site and your favorite BP site and your favorite Shell site. And, and, and uh, that's why contactless is so important. But the, app, the app's great. We've got an in-house team who have built the app and are now in, in position developing it. There's some really cool stuff coming out in, in the next few months on the app. And in time, that will incentivize more people to engage us that way. Many people, you know, you think 92% of people with an EV today have a home charger. And therefore, for those people, their use of public networks is quite sporadic. So their use or their engagement with an app is, is occasional, and that gives you a different challenge. So you've got your, your fleet drivers who might be in on your site every day, and then uh, your, your drivers who may return to you once every three months when they travel up north or, or, or to see their family. And, and we have to build user stories for each of those different types of consumers as to why would they want to come through an app. I love the app. I've got to say, I use it uh, pretty much all the time when I'm out at, at uh, using Osprey. So I think it's a great little piece of uh, kit that you've got there. Talk to me about learnings. Now, Osprey slash Engine has been in this arena now for, well, at least four years that I know of and probably longer. And the market's gone through quite a few major changes at the uh, in that time. Mostly good, but sometimes bad. Now, Osprey's changed along with the market. 
I mean, the last time we spoke, which was about two years ago, you were still the company putting a couple of 50 kilowatt charges in to replace the old charger in my local car park. And now you're putting large hubs in with state-of-the-art hardware. So what have you learned at a macro level that drives the company forward? The, the, the biggest change that's affected us is, and, and all the CPOs, is the change in consumer. So we were spoilt with our early adopter driver set if we call them maybe the you know the fully charged crew, uh, where a driver would you would be so passionate about the cause of transitioning to electric vehicles that they would give the charger another chance if it maybe didn't work first time, or they'd call the centre and say, "Oh, I, I, I use this charger all the time. I love it, but on this occasion, I've seen this error code." The mass market of driver, you know, the the, the next million of people that take EVs are not going to be like that. They're not going to be so patient. They may have been given the vehicle by their work without any decision on their side about transitioning to electric. And they just need this to work. They need this to be as easy as, as refueling with petrol and diesel. And therefore, it puts the impetus on making it as easy as possible to park, to drive into the site, to connect, to pay is so much more important. And it's funny that four or five years in, we're now talking about such basic stuff, but you get it wrong, that driver will never return, not to your site, to your network. And again, if you look at our hardware strategy, you look at our software strategy, it's all designed that in that moment of truth, the driver has a good experience and they will return. That's the key piece. So I think it's just, and, and therefore this naturally goes into the hub strategy because what we all want is a site with eight, 16, 24 uh, charge points that provide the right charge rate for that dwell time. It's easy to use. It gives you the right information you want. And again, this is this is why at the moment you won't see Osprey talking about 350 kilowatt chargers because I'd much rather give you 10 150 kilowatt chargers than three 350s. Now, a lot of what you're talking there actually, to me, look, it sort of drops down to the the micro level. Now, I was, I was chatting with Steve Forster recently, friend of the podcast, Marquee Driver, who I know works with Osprey, and he took his Marquee down to Italy and along the Adriatic, Adriatic coast. And he made a point to try out all the different CPO networks on the way down there. And he's, he took some photos and made some notes. And I believe he was intended to share those with members of the management team. Now, chatting with him, there seems to be many ex- examples of how not to do things. You know, tiny canopies over charges that neither provide shade from the sun nor cover from the rain, or instructions that were written out on a big sticker on the charger with no diagrams, lots of words, very dry language, etc. How are you looking to incorporate some of this either into future sites or into retrofitting your existing sites? I, I think what we're trying to do is not play PR games with what we build. I think I'll give a great example is solar canopies or batteries on site. Of course, where the maths and the science works, we are we are today incorporating batteries to our sites, but we are not in the business of delivering science projects for PR stories. We're here to deliver DC charging sites and and in some cases AC charging sites that suit that specific location so that when a driver arrives, they're like, this this makes sense. This is logical. So I think we, we see lots of what you could deem as innovative solutions, both across the UK and across Europe, but it's a, it's a, it's a distraction from the core job at hand, which is having as many charges of the right charge rate. And I know I, I don't want this to sound like I'm being boring here, but we're just we're just trying to do the core job right. We're not trying to um, you know create headlines for for tech that and, and and customer solutions that just don't really add any value to the driver. Uh, and I think what you know, what Steve saw in his journey was 
lots of different experiences from lots of different companies whose core business might be doing something else. Yeah. So here we have some charging at our business site, which is doing X. And for us, therefore, we really want you to come in and spend three hours at our shop. Well, okay, you put the site on the side of a motorway. So naturally you're bringing drivers in who want to short charge and go. So sticking to the knitting of just delivering public charging for drivers is 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 a, a, a traditional but, but cool phrase to what we're trying to do. If that answers your question, I, I, you know, I, there's so much noise out there. And there's some amazing technology and amazing innovation and where it adds value to the driver, we'll, we'll try it. But yeah, there's a lot of science projects out there, which are, which are you know, very interesting, great show pieces, but it's not what we want a thousand of across the UK. I spoke with Quentin Wilson last season and he thinks the government should appoint a charging czar to oversee the whole charging infrastructure here in the UK, an independent ombudsman responsible for ensuring service levels are maintained. Good idea or bad idea? Good idea. I was talking to Quentin this morning, actually, about, about fair charge and the VAT. I think the the plans that OZEV have on customer experience are detailed. Of course, there's things in there that the CPOs would like to change. But I, I, I think there are there are plans in place already to raise the bar. And it is raising the bar we need to do. I, I hope you and your listeners would agree that the Ospreys, the Incivolts, the grids of, of the world do not need to be hit with a stick to get things right. The problem is there are 5,000 rapid chargers today in the UK. They are not all reliable, easy to use, accessible. You know, and, and, and the danger is that when the new EV driver picks up their car or van for the first time, they are not directed to you know what we would regard as fit for purpose infrastructure. So it's about raising the bar on the lowest proportion of the network. And, and either those things need to be, those sites need to be upgraded or they should be taken out of commission because in t- we are only as good as our worst site as Osprey, but also as the UK charging infrastructure. So as long as those sites are open and people are being let down by them, that's the bit that has to be affected and, and addressed. Many thanks to Ian for his time. Much appreciated that he took the time to come on the show to answer the questions. It's time for a cool EV or renewable thing to share with you listeners. Uh, We often hear about the fact that you should be getting rid of single-use plastics and not buying avocados because they use too much water. But how much of this is actually true? A book by Mike Berners-Lee, yes, brother of Tim, creator of the World Wide Web, called How Bad Are Bananas is well worth looking at. It goes through the carbon footprint of literally hundreds and hundreds of things. Using a sheet of toilet paper, five grams of carbon. Sending a text message, three grams of carbon. Flying to Australia, you really don't want to know. You can argue about the accuracy of the data presented, but in the big scheme of things, it's always useful to know if you're focusing your attention in the right places when looking at reducing your carbon footprint. Worrying about a single-use plastic carrier bag which emits three grams of carbon when you fly to your second home in Spain twice a year is one way of getting some perspective. The EV Musings podcast is sponsored by ZapMap, the go-to app for EV drivers in the UK which helps EV drivers search, plan and pay for their charging. ZapMap is free to download and use with subscription plans for enhanced features such as using ZapMap in car, on CarPlay or Android Auto. And that's the show for today. Hope you enjoyed listening to it. If you want to contact me, I can be emailed at evmusings at gmail.com. I'm also on Twitter at MusingsEV. If you want to support the podcast and newsletter, please consider contributing to becoming an EV Musings patron. The link is in the show notes. Don't want to sign up for something on a monthly basis? 
Well, if you enjoyed this episode, why not buy me a coffee? Go to coffee.com slash evmusings and you can do just that. ko-fi.com slash evmusings. I have a couple of ebooks out there if you want something to read on your Kindle. So, You've Gone It Electric is available on Amazon Worldwide for the measly sum of 99p or equivalent, and it's a great little introduction to living with an electric car. So, You've Gone Renewable is also available on Amazon for 99p, and it covers installing solar panels, a storage battery, and a heat pump. Why not check them both out? Links for everything we've talked about in the podcast today are in the description. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe. It's available on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Please leave a review as it helps raise visibility and extend our reach in search engines. If you've reached this part of the podcast and you're still listening, thank you very much. Why not let me know you've got to this point by tweeting me at MusingZV with the words, welcome to the new season, hashtag if you know you know. Nothing else. Thanks as always to my co-founder Simon. You know, he's very keen to move on with his latest hobby, Egyptology. He's researching everything he can about Cleopatra, the pharaohs and all aspects of ancient Egypt. In fact, it's seeping into his everyday life. His wife asked him if he was taking a bath or a shower that morning, and he said he might do both. If you think of it as a as a pyramid of, of hygiene factors, you know. Thanks for listening. Bye.